Hello, welcome to episode number three of Books in the Wild, the podcast exploring books as books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. In our last episode, I mentioned that book artist Julie Chen was having her 30-year retrospective exhibition at the University of Washington in Seattle. The reception was held on March 16th, and I was lucky enough to attend and record her artist talk, which is what I will be playing for you today. I want to add that the exhibit is still on view through June 30th, 2017, so you still have plenty of time to check out this fabulous exhibition featuring three decades of work by Julie Chen. I do have some book art news and updates before we get into the meat of this episode. On a side note, if anyone out there wants to lend their voice to make me a book art news announcement sound clip, that would be beyond amazing. I tried to make one myself using stock sound effects and voice changers, but I just ended up sounding like the murderer in Scream, and it was recommended to me that I not use it. Today is March 28th, 2017. Springtime is here, which means it's time to finalize your summer book art plans. I have two announcements from two very reputable organizations for two fabulous opportunities in book art summer programming. Women's Studio Workshop in New York, here known as WSW, hosts week-long workshops through their Summer Art Institute in July and August. This year's classes include letterpress, intaglio, woodcuts, papermaking, encaustic, and more. For a complete schedule, visit www.wsworkshop.org. There are also two upcoming residency deadlines through Women's Studio Workshop. These four-week international residencies give artists the opportunity to work in extraordinary spaces. The Beisinghoff Printmaking Residency at Atelier House Beisinghoff in Roden, Germany, offers printmaking and letterpress. The studio residency in Malmö, Sweden, can take place at either KKV Graphic Studio or Sculpture Workshop Monumental, which, combined, offer facilities for printmaking, woodworking, ceramics, enamel, glass, metal casting, metalworking, and modelmaking. Artists receive housing free of charge for both residencies, but must provide for their own travel, food, and materials. Applications are due by June 30th for 2018 residencies. For more information, visit www.wsworkshop.org. Mills College Summer Institute for Book and Print Technologies includes two weeks of programming, including four five-day workshops and professional development seminars for book art practitioners. Workshops and seminars will be fast-paced and taught at an advanced level. All participants must have prior experience in bookmaking, letterpress printing, or printmaking, depending on the workshop. The book art studios at Mills College are spacious and well-equipped and set within the beautiful Mills College campus in the heart of Oakland. This year's lineup includes workshops by book artist Julie Chen, letterpress printer and scholar Kathy Walkup, pop-up book artist Colette Fu, and book artist and woodcut printer Karen Kunk. Weekend sessions include a master critique seminar, pricing seminar, and artist presentations. For more information, visit millsbookartsummer.org. If you have any book art news or announcements that you would like read on Books in the Wild, send information to booksinthewildpodcast at gmail.com. Now on to episode number three, Every Moment in a Book, Three Decades of Work by Julie Chen. I'm sure many of you have heard of Julie Chen, even if you have the most fleeting interest in book arts. 
About 30 years ago, after receiving her MA in book art from Mills College, Julie Chen founded Flying Fish Press in Berkeley, California, and has been creating artist books ever since. Julie's books are complex, yet streamlined. Her craftsmanship is impeccable, but doesn't outweigh the thoughtfulness or sincere emotion contained inside. Julie's books were some of the first artist books that I had ever seen, and essentially what made me determined to become a book artist myself. Flash forward several years, I decided to pursue my MFA in book art and creative writing at Mills College, where Julie now teaches, and then moved on to work at Flying Fish Press as a studio assistant. Julie is endlessly generous with her knowledge and has a unique earnestness to her teaching approach. She works tirelessly as an educator and as a working artist. In fact, I think just witnessing how hard she works has been the biggest inspiration for me. When I go to work and say things like, oh man, I really want to do this screen printed book with these mirrored images and these drawings, but I just can't get it done. And she says something very matter of fact, like, I don't understand. Why don't you just do it? While she's meanwhile producing these numerous, amazingly complicated books, alongside being a professor, teaching workshops, and preparing for exhibitions all over the country. And then I realized that I don't really have a good excuse, which mostly just encourages me to work harder, but sometimes just bums me out that maybe I'm a little lazy or at least easily distracted, such as right now, where I think I've been distracted from the point of this introduction. So I'd like to read briefly from the foreword of Julie Chen's catalog, Raisonne, written by library director and special collections curator at Mills College, Janice Braun. As both an artist and an instructor, Chen excels in combining old and new techniques at a time of increased anxiety over the predicted decline of the physical book, as well as traditional printing and bookbinding methods. Ongoing discourse regarding definitions, canon inclusion, and criticism point to book art's status as a burgeoning field. Julie Chen's work is at its forefront. Julie Chen's books are structurally brilliant and made to be touched, manipulated, and read. They often involve mapping, as well as strategic and intuitive decision-making. They both make use of and disrupt sequence and time, and they are self-contained and self-explanatory. The books are multi-layered constructions of texture, color, form, and narrative that merge structure, text, visual content, and subject matter. To read these works is not simply to turn sequential pages printed with words, but to undertake a tactile, cerebral, visual, and spiritual negotiation, investigation that might include unfolding, shuffling, and improvised reading. I'm going to now play Julie Chen's talk from March 16, 2017 at University of Washington. I have edited out many parts that just wouldn't make sense unless you were there, but I've left in a few readings by Julie that did have accompanying slides because I feel that there were many points made about the book art process that would still be of interest to listeners. I've added these pictures of the works mentioned to the reading list page on booksinthewild.com. Lastly, I want to apologize for the audio quality not being the greatest, or actually not even very good at all. Apparently recording at a live event was a bit beyond my capabilities as an amateur podcaster. But if I ever do this again, I'll figure out what I'm doing next time. So, without further ado, Sandra Krupa and Julie Chen. So, um, so I'm Sandra Krupa. I'm the book arts and rare book curator in Special Collections, where I've gotten to do pretty much almost everything I wanted to do in my life in the last 48 years and plan on being there until I'm dust. 
and then the plan is my dust goes to Julie and Julie passes me out to book artists and they make me into books and I come back to the collection as book pieces. Um, I was always planning on getting cremated and giving my ashes to our conservation staff and getting made into protective boxes, but I said that in public once and Julie came up later and said, no, you have to be part of art. And I said, but who's going to be here? And she said, I'll do it. So <laughs> from then on, we were the fastest of friends. Um, so hard to know how to in introduce somebody like Julie Chan. Um, she's just an amazing artist. She writes, creates images, fabricates structures that all harmonize into one theme and one overwhelming expression of meaning and emotion. I read her text aloud to students every week, sometimes several times a week. I never tire of them, and that's really saying a lot. Her content is complex, multi-layered, and expansive. Her books challenge us, inspire us, and energize the reader. Few artists in this field express the issues of today's society as compactly and richly as Julie does. I am really thrilled to be her advocate and her friend. She has trusted me and the University of Washington Library with the guts of her books, her archive. The retrospective exhibit is culmination of 30 years of creative work, but I hope is a preamble of many more years to come, and I plan on being live for every single one of them. Julie Chen. Thank you, Sandra. When looking back over all the books I have made, there is one question that I have always been seeking the answer to. What is a book? The Oxford English Dictionary lists this as the first definition of the word book. This is a definition that I think most people can easily accept from their own experience of books. Further down in the list of definitions comes this one, which is much closer to my own personal understanding of what a book is and gets much closer to the possible definition of what an artist book can be. When trying to come up with my own personal definition of the word book, the word object always plays a central role. One of the main features that I have been fascinating with, all, fascinated with always is that of the physical structure of the book. From the very beginning, I was interested in the idea of the book as object and in, in exploring ways for reader interaction to become an intentional component of content. Craft has always been a central part of my creative practice. While concept and meaning are, of course, also key ingredients, the physical form of the book is always uppermost in my mind. My intention was never to subvert the traditional definition of the book, but rather to expand it. When I was in graduate school, someone told me that I would leave school with 10 years worth of ideas. At the young age of 26, 10 years seemed like an almost unfathomably large amount of time, but that prediction turned out to be somewhat true. For the first 10 years, book ideas just seemed to be stacked up on the runway, and the only problem was figuring out how to get them out fast enough. But then, right around the 10-year mark, a life-changing opportunity was given to me. In the year 2000, I was invited to be part of an exhibition at the San Jose Tech Museum of Innovation called Experiments in the Future of Reading, also known as XFR for short. Designed and sponsored by Xerox PARC, this exhibition focused mostly on what at the time was cutting-edge technology 
devices that would help take the activity of reading into the digital age. This was the year 2000, remember. Along with electronic devices such as Red the Seeing Eye Dog, which was an optical scanning device shaped like a dog, the designers of the show wanted there to be digitally oriented there, there to be a digitally oriented lab with real live book artists working on projects. This is where I was introduced to the laser cutter, which has since become a mainstay of my studio practice. While I had never shied away from making shaped books, my ideas were somewhat constrained by what I could realistically do with an X-Acto knife and a pair of scissors. While I eventually may have come to see that the laser cutter was an important tool for me, Working for three weeks during XFR gave me intensive training on how this machine works and was instrumental in pushing me to not just use, the la use laser cutting as part of my work, but in purchasing a laser cutter of my own for my own studio to allow me to control the whole process of prototyping and production. In retrospect, I can see that this, more than any other single event, changed the course of my work. One of the projects I worked on during XFR was evidence of compression. I had been interested in the possibility of making a shaped object, but couldn't see a feasible way to cut out all the parts by hand. The laser cutter became an extension of the hand and to, to allow me to follow my ideas beyond where a knife and scissors could take me. The veil was the first project I made using a laser cutter in my own studio. It was actually the project that convinced me that I needed to buy one. Because after um, I was done with, the, with XFR and I didn't have access to the cutter, my brain kept handing me ideas that needed a laser cutter. And I would say, oh, you know, my brain would say, we could do all these little parts. It's like, no, we can't do that anymore. We don't have that machine. It's like, okay. Well, we could do this. And it would have all these different kinds of little parts. And so finally, um, I realized this project, I really needed to cut all these um, veil sort of patterns in it. So I had to break down and, and buy a cutter. Other projects involving complex cutting quickly followed, such as Personal Paradigms, A Game of Human Experience, which has over 75 individual game pieces in each set. And here's what all the pieces look like when you take them out of the box. It's in the show as well. And it has all these wooden pieces and laser engraved text on these little wooden strips. And um, the, the blue uh, game pieces are um, laser engraved into plexiglass. So, so I really started using the capabilities of the machine once I had it to myself. So in this, um, it's a game, so you, you take out all the parts and you create a pattern that uses your own life experience. And then when you're done with your pattern, you, put it, you record it in a book. And actually, I should tell you, this, this whole project came out of a, a conversation I had with Sandra. Um, the year before I did this project, I was having a lot of feelings of just wondering if my work was really valuable. You know, I mostly work alone and feeling like, well, I'm just sitting in my studio coming up with ideas and making work. How valuable is that? And she stopped me in the middle of my kind of rant, my feeling sorry for myself rant. She said, no, if you could see what I see when I show people work, you wouldn't have that question. Because people, a lot of people get a lot out of, of looking at art. People who can't make art themselves are getting an experience that they can't get any other way. And so I went away from that conversation thinking, there should be a way for people to make art. Even people who came to the library not planning to make art. So, so my idea was that you would play this game and then you'd be forced to make art and leave, leave your record of your art in a book that other people could look at. So it's all Sandra's fault. As I was thinking of how I wanted to structure my catalog, because um, Mills College Center for the Book and, and Fly, my, my imprint, Flying Fish Press, jointly published a 30-year retrospective catalog raisonné. 
Um, I started to think about all my work and figuring out how to categorize everything, and I noticed that almost everything I've made can be categorized as having one of three approaches to the book, through the lens of time or space or object. As I mentioned earlier, the book as object has always been a central fascination of mine, but I've also been extremely interested in the book as a time-based media akin to film, as well as a space-based media such as sculpture. I'm going to read from three books that each focus on one of these approaches. I'm going to start this portion of my talk by reading from Panorama, a book that utilizes the concept of space as a com component of content. This book is about climate change. I undertook this project because I became increasingly aware of how uncomfortable I was thinking about this frightening and overwhelming topic. I decided that the book itself should confront the reader with its imposing size and unexpected pop-up and fold-out elements. The book, when fully expanded, is five feet in width. There are three fold-out chapters in which text and image is revealed in sections. Some lines from the text remain visible as the sections are unfolded to act as a visual echo of ideas already expressed, as well as components for new ideas when com combined with, lines, with new lines of text. This re repeated text, this repetition of text, is really meant for reading silently because I'm assuming that a reader will come to a library um, or a private collection and read it to themselves rather than reading it aloud. So I, as I read, I will not repeat the phrases that, the part of, parts of phrases that continue to be visible, um, but only the newly revealed text, because this is what I'm assuming readers will do. They'll see the thing that they previously read, they'll flip up a section, read the new thing. The old one's still there, but they're not going to consciously read it again. So you'll see what I mean in a minute. So there are three um, black pages in the book that start out the chapters, and they have three different definitions of the word panorama. Um, the first one is a picture representing a continuous scene, often exhibited one part at a time. And then when you open that, it reveals a fold-out section in the middle. So when, when these two tri-fold pages are open, it's five feet wide, which is um, the same height that I am. So if you put the book up this way, it would, uh, okay, maybe I'm not quite five, five feet, but I'm close with my shoes on. So here's a close-up of the fold-out section. You are here, in this room, in this city, on this planet, at this moment in time. You are in denial. You cannot bring yourself to see the magnitude of the situation. You do not want to believe that time is running out. And then the next page is a very large pop-up. So the pop-up is, how big is it? 42 inches, no, is that right? It's about 42 inches wide when it's open. And on the, the surface of the planet, uh, the, the image of the planet is this text. The breathable, the breathable atmosphere that surrounds the Earth comes to an end, end roughly six miles above sea level. This may seem like a long distance until you imagine laying it out horizontally instead of vertically. Instead of visualizing the struggle to breathe at the top of Mount Everest, Consider what it would be like to run out of air in the midst of your daily commute to work. What familiar landmark would you be passing by at the moment when you took your last obtainable breath? An unlimited view in all directions. So this is the second fold-out section. No one imagined what terrible beauty lay beneath the surface. You live in a world with a secret story where everything is inextricably linked in ways that you may never fully understand. 
where all evidence points to one conclusion, that the situation is much worse than you had feared. Everything you hold dear is poised to turn against you. Your repeated failure to change your way of life is having serious repercussions. No action that you take from this day forward will be enough to reverse the process of destruction that has already been set in motion. No one imagined what terrible beauty lay beneath the surface until it was too late. This is the second pop-up. And the text on this one reads, if each species that is committed to extinction by the end of the year 2050 corresponded to a single word listed in the Oxford English Dictionary, you would have to read through the entire list of entries nine times in a row in order to represent them all. If each word took one second to read, and you did nothing but read dictionary entries for 20 hours a day with no breaks, it would take you 23 days of nonstop reading before you were through. Continuous series of unfolding events. Make a space for the things that are gone so they will not be forgotten. Your habitat is in peril. You are standing on the brink of an uncertain future as both willing contributor, contributor and unknowing heir to monu monumental changes that began long before you were born. The invisible world is making itself known through radical transformations that have taken place within your own lifetime. Take a serious look at the truth about the world around you. You are only one tiny part of a vast living web of interdependence. You are only one of many in your emerging recognition that doing nothing has now become as powerful as taking action. The planet will endure long after you are gone. What matters now is whether you will think beyond your own survival and respond to the challenges that await you. So a lot of times when I write text, I write in second person. And so sometimes um, I feel, unfortunately, like people feel sometimes as the reader that I'm speaking to them. I sort of am speaking to them, but more I'm speaking to myself. And so this book in particular is really like a letter to myself that I'm the one who has to you know, start living my life and, and take, take, take um, responsibility for my own actions. But, but the way the writing comes out, it, it's often to a you, um, which, which also happens to be me. So um, one of the other things I wanted to say about this book is that um, this book took a lot longer to make than a lot of my other books. It took me almost a whole year of printing and designing to do it. And a lot of my other projects would take up to, I think the, the, the next longest one has taken six months to produce. So having to spend a whole year working on a project and not getting any income from it was a really, it was kind of a hard thing. But also at a certain point I just had to keep going because I had invested so much in it. So I, I had to start even though I ha didn't know what the ending was going to be. And so I'm working on this thing over the course of a year and maybe seven or eight months have gone by and I still don't know how the book is going to end. And so towards the end of the book, I really had to stop and decide what I wanted it to say at the end. And um, it, was a, it was a very interesting process for me as an artist to um, work that way. Because usually, I'm a big pre-planner. And so I usually know exactly, well, at least I start out thinking I know exactly what I'm going to do. So I have a plan A. And then sometimes it, it changes during the course of the book. But without the plan A, it's always hard to make that leap. But in this case, I kind of had to because I knew it was going to take a lot longer than I thought. So I, I actually worked on this seven days a week for, for a whole year. Well, I was teaching too, so some of those days weren't full days. So the next book I'm going to read from is a book called Praxis Illustrated. And this book is a, a particular favorite of mine because the content focuses on the creative process. 
um, which is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about in my role as a professor of book art at Mills College. Before I read the text of the book, I'm going to read a section about Praxis Illustrated from my catalog. I'll just say that this is um, one of the books that um, I write about in the section of the catalog about time. So in this uh, catalog, uh, Sandra wrote a wonderful essay in the catalog, which I'm still very um, humbled by, just having someone take such a close look at, at my work and, and write such a thoughtful piece. Um, but then I spent uh, the, the uh, sort of the last third of the catalog writing uh, essays about nine different books of mine. And this is one of the ones that I wrote about. Um, so this is the, the little uh, short essay from the catalog about Praxis Illustrated. In the summer of 2012, I was approached by Jill Lerner, then the director of the Ringling College of Art and Design's Letterpress and Book Arts Center, affectionately known at Ringling as the Letterpress, with an invitation to be a visiting artist. With the help of students and volunteers, they would publish a piece of mine in a small edition. I would come out to Ringling for a week to do press checks and give a public lecture. This sounded like a wonderful opportunity, but when I asked when they would like me to come, the answer was mid-November. This gave me just two, over two months to develop and flesh out a new book project, for me a very short period of time. I spent the rest of that day and most of the next trying to figure out what kind of project I could feasibly develop and design in a month and a half so they would have time to, uh, so they could make, the make and proof the first plates before I arrived in mid-November. Jill had mentioned that a Florida-related theme was encouraged but not required. My daughter had long been an avid fruit lover. One might even go so far as to call her a fruit fanatic. Because of this, I had toyed for years with the idea of making, artist book, making an artist book about fruit. Because Florida and California, where I live, are both big citrus-growing regions, this, I decided, was my chance to realize my fruit book dreams. Because time was so short, I immediately started doing research about citrus cultivation and learned quite a few very interesting facts about citrus fruits. I asked Jill to have someone go to the market in Sarasota and purchase as many varieties of citrus as were available and take photographs of them. At this point, I wasn't sure what direction the book would ultimately take, but I was committed to including citrus in some significant way. In the process of doing citrus research, I became increasingly interested in color theory, as well as in the cultural responses that people have to various colors, and my research soon expanded to include those topics as well. October rolled around, and I was still not quite sure where the, all this research was leading. Among all my previous editions, um, almost all my previous editions had taken at least four to six months to develop, so I was feeling pressed for time to come to some kind of content resolution. After a great deal of soul-searching and late-night sessions with notes and reference books strewn around me, it finally dawned on me that this book was going to be about the creative process itself. The condensed time constraints I was working under continually forced me to be much more aware of my own creative process than I normally would be. This, in turn, led me to consider the advice I had given to students over the years about honoring their own processes when making artist books, and also gave me a great deal of empathy for the very short deadlines under which students must, must produce creative work. The text for Praxis Illustrated is very much like a letter of, of advice to my students, as well as to myself as an artist. Illustrated meaningfully with images of citrus fruits in real-life colors, including several movable mechanisms and fold-outs that visually and experientially explain various concepts. In the end, the book took much longer to complete than any of us imagined. 
All the printing was done at Ringling, using over 120 plates and the binding in my own studio in Berkeley. Start anywhere. Make the decision to begin. Delve into whatever interests you at the moment, no matter how unlikely it may seem. Any topic could be the catalyst that ignites the creative process. Never dismiss the mundane as a starting point for deep and meaningful work. Choose a line of inquiry. Keep an open mind. Engage in research that is wide as well as deep. Be prepared for your activities to spark new ideas that will propel you in unforeseen directions. You may have yet to discover the concept that will eventually become the focus of your work. Immerse yourself in the process. Observe. Take a step back from your thought process. Pay attention to subtle discrepancies between perception and interpretation in your experience of the world around you. Allow unexpected connections in your thinking to emerge. You never know where or how far an idea may take you. Investigate. Do not rush to finalize your plans. Stay open to the possibilities that your intentions and ideas may shift numerous times, perhaps in dramatic ways before you fully understand what you are doing. This page also contains two rotating wheels that contain both text and image that appear in small oval windows in the page. The text on the first wheel deals with the act of seeing, and the text on the second wheel deals with the perception of color. The text from the first wheel reads, Seeing is an act of interpretation. It is an automatic event involving no conscious effort. We make snap judgments based on mistaken assumptions about the accuracy of vision. We do not question how we know what we think we know. We assign meaning and value to objects by relying more heavily on images we hold in our minds than on what we see before us. The text on the second wheel reads, we assign personal meaning to color, but tend to accept the definitions prescribed by society. We make judgments based on color even though it has no intrinsic meaning. Color is not a reliable indicator of the true nature of an object. Our experience of color is dependent on the context in which it is seen. And this goes back to all that citrus fruit um, research I've been doing because some citrus fruits that have never made it, um, were never popular in the market, were not, were green when they were ripe. And so no one would buy them. They'd have piles of them in the market, but people would think they weren't ripe. And so it, it's sort of that, that idea that we, we make these judgments, but without really knowing um, what, we're, what we're making that judgment, that whether our judgment is accurate or not. Encompass, define, identify the, ob uh, the objective of your activity and the vocabulary with which you will speak. Iterate, iterate, iterate. The work in your mind does not really exist. Do not fuse the theoretical with the concrete. Articulate your vision. Proceed in whatever direction the work impels you to go. Address the merging of form and content. Surrender yourself to the narrative. Recognize the moment of completion. That last page spread has these vowels that um, the little tab turns and the fruits turn into a non-realistic color. I'm going to end my presentation by reading from my book, Memento. This book is a good example of a piece that uses the idea of the book as object as a central component of content. In late 2011, just two months before the withdrawal of troops from Iraq, I was invited to participate in an inventory of Al Mutanabi Street, a project started by Bo Beausoleil and Sarah Bodman in response to the bombing in 2007 of Al Mutanabi Street in Baghdad, known as the Street of the Booksellers. Over 200 book artists have participated in this project. 
Um, one copy of each, of each book in the project was donated to the National Library in Baghdad. Um, so each of the artists who agreed to make a book for the Al Mojanabi Street project had to donate three copies. Um, one went to Baghdad, one went on um, exhibit around the world, and I believe the third copy was um, donated or, or sold um, to benefit Doctors Without Borders, but, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, I, that's my memory, but I, I forgot to look it up before I came. As I was making Memento, I began by considering my own experience of reading and how ingrained my sense of entitlement to read what I please clouded my ability to understand what it might be like in a radically different social situation. I pondered the idea of reading as a potentially dangerous act in which possession of a book on one's own person could become a death sentence. In such a world, how much courage would I myself have? Given the chance, would I continue to read whatever I chose? This piece consists of a two-sided copper locket that contains a book on one side and a woven memorial token on the other. The two texts woven into the token are taken from the preambles to the constitutions of both the United States and Iraq. The pages of the book contain my musings about reading and images that begin as mysterious patterns of lines, but as the book progresses, slowly resolves into an image of a pile of books. And this book is really small. The book itself is maybe this big. Oh, that last image that, that went by really fast was an image of a bookseller, bookseller stall on El Mutanabi Street that, that the El Mutanabi Street project allowed me to use in the book. And so I have it, um, parts of the image are seen around the woven token on the sides of the doors. So I'm going to end my presentation by reading the text from the book. It's not very long. Um, even though this book was made in 2012, I think it contains a message that is very relevant to the political situation that we find ourselves in today. You live your life careless of the liberty that you have inherited. For you, the printed word has become commonplace, a substance that you take for granted, like air, like the inalienable right to think your own thoughts, thoughts made visible through words on paper and then thrown in the trash without consideration. A thing so basic that you are not conscious of its contingency. You value the written word only abstractly, not as though this value could be translated into such things as time or money or freedom from persecution. What if, with each word you ever read, you risked losing one millisecond of your life? And with each word you destroyed without thought, you risked bringing your community one millisecond closer to destruction? A book would be a force of reckoning, an object to be cherished and feared, the dividing line between the free world and the unfree world. This is the reality that you pretend not to see. You focus instead on, we focus instead on, the idea of freedom for all, ignoring the simple fact that this has never been the way things are. What will it take to wake us from our collective dream? Thank you. Are there any questions? So do you develop your text separately from the form of your book, or do they come together, or which comes first? It really varies. Um, sometimes the text comes first. Sometimes the idea for the structure comes first. Sometimes um, just the concept comes first. So I, I don't really have like a one, one, one way that works more than the others. It really just depends on what's happening. I can say that sometimes I will come up with a, or I'll see uh, and develop an idea for a structure, and I'll hang on to that until the right project comes along. 
So um, for, for a number of years, I was dying to do a book with a wheel in it. I don't know why. I just thought, I want to do a book with a wheel. And so every time I would have a new project come up, I would say, oh, maybe this is going to be the wheel book. And I would start to develop the, the text and the ideas. It's like, no, this isn't the wheel book. And then, you know, so three years went by, and I started to do this project where I was thinking about um, belief, and not, not necessarily religious belief, but the things we believe that just like, you know, that the sun will rise tomorrow. It's like we don't actually know that, but we just believe it. And so I started to really think about my own cycles of believing in different things that just made my life livable. And I thought, oh, I think this is the wheel book. And it did turn out to be the wheel book. Um, it's called Full Circle. It's in the show. And it's really talking about how that, that sort of idea of belief is really cyclical and it goes around and, you know, you believe in something and then you start to disavow it and you turn against it but then sooner or later you come back to it and it goes it goes around and around so 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 sometimes things like that where a part of a book will come to me but I'll have to like sit on it until the rest of it catches up so I'm kind of in a similar a situation like that right now where I've got something started but the rest of it hasn't seemed to want to come out so I'm still waiting for for the other parts to come together you must have about 73 ideas at a time how do you choose? You know, the funny thing is, like when I said earlier in the talk, when I, when I came out of graduate school and someone told me I would have 10 years worth of ideas, and I really did, it was like just all the stuff was coming to me. I would say in the last 10 years, it's really, I feel like I'm able to just sort of wait and see what happens, which is really interesting. Things like the, the, the um, opportunity at Ringling came up, and they said, well, publish whatever you want. What do you want to do? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, I got two months to figure it out. And so I was able to just, I didn't, it wasn't something that I had started um, previously. It was something that I just decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And so there's kind of an excitement about not knowing what I'm going to do because um, that's sort of where I am now. And, and I don't know if it's just age or just, you know, practice or whatever, but, but it's really changed. And um, one of the things I didn't talk about in this uh, talk that I'll just mention is I used to have this really deep-seated superstition that until a book was at least halfway done, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't tell anybody what I was working on. Because if I did, uh, I would get hit by a bus. <laughs> and I would be killed and I wouldn't be able to finish the, the, the book. But I mean, it was like this, this, um, this real superstition. I felt like if I, if I jinxed it and talked about it, I would, the doorbell would ring and I'd open the door and there would be the bus you know, coming to get me. So it wasn't, it was a serious thing. And um, I don't feel that way anymore. And I think Sandra was really, um, where, wherever she is, um, the, was really surprised the first time I started telling her what I was working on. She's like, well, you never talk about what you're working on. I said, oh, something happened. And that bus isn't following me around anymore. <laughs> so now I feel like I can talk about stuff. And I, I, again, I don't know why that's changed, but I would, you know, and I don't notice exactly when, but for, for at least 20 years, that bus was really following me, and I had to, like, really hug, hug it to my chest what I was working on. But now I, I kind of am more interested in getting ideas from, from things that happen in the world um, directly, like, like really being aware of where those ideas come from instead of having it well up internally and then later on figuring out where it came from. So, um, so yeah, I must have ideas in there, but, but I'm not as invested in knowing what they are anymore. I mean, they're going to come out when they're ready to come out, I think is the thing. Yeah? How do you deal with a calendar, uh, either in a catalog or an exhibit, 
display, choosing how to display. You can't obviously display every page at one time. Yeah, that is, that's a really hard thing, and that's something that we've really had to deal with in, in the book art world the whole time, is, is there's this desire and interest to show the work. And I, which I think is important because I would never get to see a lot of the work of my colleagues if it weren't for book shows. But you only get to see like one page. And, and so it, it always has been a, kind of an issue. And um, in, in my mind, I always think about if, if you're going to do an exhibit about a film, what would be in it? And it, unless you're actually showing the film, in which case it's not an exhibit, it's a showing of the film, right? You're screening a film. But you would show like you know, maybe the posters from the film, or stills from the film, or, you know, the, the, the script from the film, and so you'd be seeing these parts, but then if you really want to experience the film, you would have to go experience the film, and I think it's the same way that with books, we can show a page of the book, or maybe two pages of the book, maybe um, those, there's a special evening during uh, an exhibition where someone comes and will show you all the pages, but really the, the thing you have to do eventually is go to a library and, and actually read the book, and I think for me, that's one of the, the real powers of, of the book, is that it really is meant to be handled, and that the only way you're going to get the whole experience is to handle it, which is why I love libraries. I think there has been like a, a push, say, in the last 15 years for, for book arts to sort of make the leap into the fine art world and, and be shown in galleries. And I can understand that, because it sort of gives us this sort of legitimacy of, of the art world. But I think it takes away from the library experience, where you can anybody can come in to a library like here, make an appointment, say, I want to see this book. And they'll put it down in front of you. And you can sit there. I think there's a two-hour limit. But two hours is long. You can look at a lot of books in two hours. You don't just want to look at one. But they leave you alone with a book. And you can actually read the book. And I think that's important. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting dilemma, you know, having a book show and, and wanting people to be able to, to read the books. But at the same time, it's so different from the art world where you may never get to actually handle a work of art that you see in a museum. Um, with books, especially what I do with editions, there are books all over the country and, and people, maybe not everywhere, but a lot of places people could make an appointment at the library and actually look at the book. So, so I think you have to have both both sides. Um, and I have to say that I, I'm guilty of not going and looking at every book I see in a book show, but at least I know it exists. And so when I am at a library, like I'll be here for a couple of extra days, I'm going to look at some books that, that I that could, don't have you know, in my own um, institutional collection that I can see here. So, so yeah, so that's sort of my long-winded answer. But, but it's, it is always kind of a it's an interesting kind of situation, balancing act between the, the book show and the, the book experience. When did your identity as a book artist really come together for you? Was there a time when you felt you were a two-dimensional visual artist or a writer or...? Um, I, so, so this is kind of a, a small but kind of funny story. So I... I um, Oh, the question was, when did my identity, or when did I develop, discover my identity as a book artist as opposed to, uh, to some other kind of artist, like a 2D artist? Um, so I got my undergrad degree in, in um, book, um, sorry, not in book, in um, printmaking and sculpture. So, and I had never heard of book art by that, at that time. And um, so I always wanted to go back to graduate school. And so um, my, my sister was, was doing her undergrad work at Mills College. Um, and I decided, when my daughter was really young, 
Uh, she was maybe a year, less than a year old. And, and I said, well, let's go visit your aunt at school. And we'll take a little stroller ride through the campus. I said, oh, well, I'm here. Um, I'm going to get the graduate catalog and just take it home. And maybe I'll come back here to graduate school. So I'm flipping through the catalog. And there's a printmaking program at, that's no longer there, but they had one at the time. And, and I pass by, and there's this other program called Book Arts. It's like, Book Arts, what is that? And I'm reading all these descriptions, and I have no idea what they're talking about. But it was almost like, you know, some, some little voice in my head said, call them. Call them and make an appointment. So I did. I called. I said, I'd like to come and talk to you about this program in Book Arts. And um, I met with a director, and I walked into the studio, and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I had no idea what any of it was, but it just felt right, so I applied got into the program. They told me later I got in by the skin of my teeth because I didn't have any books. You know, I had prints and I had other things. And then, um, and then it was like going to boot camp because I had to learn how to letter, you know, set type and do all these things, sew up a book, which I'd never done before. I was really incensed when they told me you had to like set your type letter by letter. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Who does this? Of course, I fell in love with it. But it, when I first so, so it was interesting because I had no idea what I was doing, but it, it really felt like the right thing to do, and I never looked back, and never, never in all these years have I felt like, oh, I wonder if I made a mistake. And, and even like people say, well, what are you going to do after school? It's like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it. And, and so, so I had to sort of come up with this idea of, of how, to, how to create a working model for starting a press. And so I looked at what other people were doing and then you know, tried to interject what I wanted to do. And you know, it's sort of a work in progress 30 years later. We finally sort of have a good um, kind of rhythm going. But you, know, you try out a lot of things. You discard the things that don't work, and you keep doing the things that do. But, um, but I can't explain why it started, but I, I just knew from, from when I saw those descriptions of these courses, I had no idea what they meant, that this is what I was supposed to do. And I, I don't know why. Yeah? Maybe this is my own naivete, but one of the things that, that separates your work out from other people's is that so much of the emotional weight in the work is carried not by images, but by abstractions, by words that are mm -hmm. like topography. You know. Can you talk about that a bit? And this is, after all, a visual, uh, visual art, and yet mm -hmm. and for those abstract words carry so much emotion in your work. Yeah, th that's an interesting question because for a long time, until fairly recently, I really never considered myself to be a writer. Because I write all this text, but it's really only meant to be seen in the book. And I've had like, um, times when people want to um, abstract the, the writing for, they want to review the book or they want to have it, you know, describe it, uh, write about it, and they want to have the whole text. And it always makes me really nervous because it's like, well, the, the text shouldn't really exist outside of the book. It's like, how would you, you know, it's like saying, well, can I take the structure and just show people the structure without the rest of the book? It's like, well, yeah, but it wouldn't really be the book anymore. It would just be the structure. So, so to me, it's all really interrelated. And I don't, I think from the very beginning, I've always worked with text and image and, and the book form and the idea of, of sequence. But um, I really see these things all together. And so even though I have to work on them separately, they all adjust to each other. So if something in the text changes the concept of the book, the whole, the structure of the book may change, everything about the book may change. But if something about the structure changes the concept of the book, the text may change. So, so there really, to me, in my mind, there's nothing that takes precedence over anything else. You know, eventually, in specific um, 
books, sometimes the text or the image takes precedence, but while I'm working on them, everything is equal and everything has a voice. And so I, 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 that, that's the only way I can explain it. So, so I really, it's really hard for me to, to take all those parts separately um, because they're, they're all meant to go together. Um, what's your favorite thing technique? Um, um, and then you said when you get things published, what does that mean? Because they can't reproduce, they don't reproduce your books. Oh, well, no, so, so the question is, what, 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 what is my favorite printmaking technique? Okay, well, and then the question about publishing. Um, so my favorite printmaking technique is letterpress printing. I mean, most of my work's done with um, uh, photopolymer plates. And so I do a lot of my design on the computer and then have it turned into film, and then we turn the film into plastic photo photosensitive plates and then print it on the letterpress. So when I started out as a printmaker, I was doing a lot of woodblock prints and a lot, a lot of linoleum block prints. Um, which I still really like those kind of techniques, but the way things come to me now, it's usually I'm thinking about letterpress, and so I'm thinking about how to translate my ideas into letterpress. And um, I don't really personally feel like letterpress has some magical properties over other kinds of printmaking. It just happens to me to be what I use. It's sort of like I'm an English speaker, so I speak English. doesn't mean... I'm dissing other languages, but it's the, the way I think is in English, and the way I think is in letterpress. So I would have to say that's my favorite technique. Um, the publishing thing is I'm publishing the work. So a lot of the, the books that I'm making are in, I used to do editions of 100, and now I usually do editions of 50. Um, and that was like one of those things that, you know, you, you, you experiment with things, and it turns out 100 just takes us way too long to put together, years and years. So. Now, now I'm doing 50, so we can cycle through a little faster, and, and um, we don't have to remember <laughs> how to put like 10 different books together um, at any given time. We only have to maybe remember five, which, which, which makes it a lot easier. Um, so, so I'm publishing the work under Flying Fish Press, and I used to publish the work of other artists as well as my own. So that's why Lois Morris and I published three books with her. So I'm acting as the, the publisher and the designer, but it's her content. So she's doing the writing and she's doing the, the imagery and then I do the printing and the binding and um, you know, finish all the work and then send it out to you know, give her, she gets a portion of the edition and the rest gets sold. Um, so, so that's how that works. The last, I, most of the work I do now is my own work. Every now and then I will do a collaboration with, a, with another book artist where it's um, sort of a 50-50 collaboration where we're jointly publishing the work and we decide together how many copies we're going to publish. Um, the, the catalog that, that got published, which Sandra was, that I read from and that Sandra mentioned, um, was a joint effort we, between my press, Flying Fish Press, and um, the Mills Center for the Book. So, so I designed the, the, the catalog, and they um, paid for the, the printing so that you know, it was sort of like I put in the sweat equity, if you will, and, and they put in the money. And together, we were able to publish what what we're a, a catalog that we're both really, really happy with. So, maybe one more question. Yep. Um, thank you very much. I, I have a question. I, um, next quarter, I'll be asking my students to visit your, your your exhibit here, and these are mostly science and math students who have probably never heard of 
an artist book in their mm -hmm. lives. And I would love it if you would help me introduce these students to your work. If you were to introduce your work to someone who had never encountered an artist book, who has no idea what to expect, what, what would you say to them? How would you frame this experience they're about to have? That's a really big question. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, that you just have to um, not come in with too, too many preconceived ideas about what you're about to experience. Because I think, and this is something I tell my students about making complicated structures or what have you, is people are really um, easy to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's really easy for people to, to sort of give up on a book, like because I don't know how this works, or I don't know what I, you know, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? And um, so I always tell my students, you have to make it clear enough um, so that people won't give up partway through. And so I do a lot of testing or prototyping, you know, so that it's like let me watch, let me watch you handle this, and you know, let's see where you get stuck. And a lot of times people get stuck putting things back. So then it's like, okay, then we have to have instructions for putting things back. So, so I would say for students, it's just, you, you probably have never had any kind of experience like the one you're about to have at the University of Washington in the special collections. So just be open to whatever happens. Um, and also, you know, be careful with the work, but if it looks like it's trying to tell you something, see if, you know, you can gently get to the next page, or Sandra Krupa is really good at reading out loud. So that's another really interesting way of being introduced to, to artist books, is having someone guide you through it. Um, and, and so I guess that would be the main thing. And, and that's something that I have to remember, too, when I'm looking at new work that from, from an artist that I'm not familiar with, or, or some, an artist I am familiar with who's doing something new. It's like, what is this? And for me, it's really exciting, because you know I'm kind of familiar with what might be in there and my, how I might be able to open it or, or experience something. But I think for a new person, it, is, it can be overwhelming because it can be so many different things, you know? And I think it's really good to just go in with no expectations, which is impossible. But at least if you tell people, try not to have expectations. When you hear the word book, try not to immediately think about, you know, a book because this is something different. And, and you're, you're going to see the connection later. But, but don't bring it into the room if you can, because you know this is a different kind of experience of reading than you're normally going to have. So, so thank you all again for coming. Hi, it's me again. Thank you for listening to Books in the Wild. For more information, visit booksinthewild.com. And for more information about Julie Chen and Flying Fish Press, you can visit flyingfishpress.com.